And let's turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, this evening. Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we pick things up in Numbers, chapter 16. I think it's helpful, at least it is for me, so then I assume it is for you. Um, I think it's helpful to kind of get a little time frame uh, around the events that we're in the middle of. We talk about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and we talk about them at Mount Sinai. We talk about their failure at Kadesh Barnea, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, and then wandering in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. And, and then it seems like as you read through the book of Numbers, the next thing they're on the border of uh, the promised land and, uh, you know, getting ready to, to head in as they start to defeat some of the nations on the eastern side of, of the Jordan River. In Exodus, from Exodus chapter 15, which was uh, a record of the crossing of the Red Sea miraculously by the children of Israel, through the end of the book of Exodus with all of the instructions given about the building of the tabernacle and the furnishings and and all, and then the actual building of the tabernacle and, and all of the furnishings covered a period of about one year. Book of Leviticus covered a period of about uh, one month. And then Numbers uh, chapters 1 through 14, including the failure at Kadesh Barnea to enter into the promised land uh, by faith, uh, that took place in the second year after uh, uh, Israel, the children of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. And then in chapters 15 through 19, we have a record of their 38 years of wandering uh, there in, in the wilderness. And then chapters 20 through 36, they take place in the 40th year uh, of that wandering, just before they're about to enter in uh, to the promised land. And then the book of Deuteronomy, the whole thing covers just a period of about two months where Moses kind of re-instructs them on things just before they enter into the land. It's fascinating when you read the book of Numbers, and there's such a build-up and such detail to coming right up to the border of the promised land. And, uh, and then uh, you, you start to look in the Bible and you say, well, where's the long kind of detailed record of their 38 years in the wilderness? And you just turn a couple pages and you're past it. I mean, there's a very, very scant record uh, of their time uh, in the wilderness for those 40 years of wandering. And it's a very scant record for a simple reason. When a person is failing to live in obedience to the Lord, when they are living, they're a child of God, and they're, but they're living in rebellion to God's commandments, they're living in rebellion to His call upon their life, the fact of the matter is for the children of Israel or for any of us, there's not much worth recording. It's just going in circles until you die. And that's, that's a person, again, can be that is a Christian. It's possible to escape Egypt and fail to go into the promised land. Escape the, the world and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, the bondage of, of that in, in some respects, but fail to enter into the promises of God. And that, that is a life that is just completely wasted. Just wasted. And so that's, that's what it, it, it speaks about. It's so short because there's not much to record, and what is recorded is almost entirely a failure. I don't know about you. I know about me, and I assume you're like me in this because you're descendant of Adam and Eve. I need to stay obedient to the things of the Lord, and not only His commandments and His word, but obedient to His call upon my life to stay out of trouble. I can get in a lot of trouble uh, in the wilderness. And, and without obeying him and trying to continue to live by faith and moving forward uh, in my life. And the fact of the matter is if we don't stay growing as Christians and moving forward into greater and greater possessing of the promises of God, we're going to get into all kinds of trouble. And that's precisely what happens uh, this evening as we come into chapter 16. Here is uh, <laughs> part of the trouble that you can uh, get into. And chapter 16 is a record of Another, poor Moses and Aaron, poor Moses, another open and defiant rebellion on the part of God's people 
against their authority, against the authority that God had given them uh, to lead the children of, of Israel. He's been through one after another after another, including his brother and including his sister, and now here comes another. And it's led by a man by the name of Korah. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. We're, interested, we're introduced into him, to him in this way, and the introduction is very significant. Because what it tells us is that this man who is going to lead a rebellion against Moses' authority is not just a, you know, nobody kind of of a person or someone who doesn't have a ministry and is looking for a ministry and wants to, uh, you know, there's only room to, you know, the only way he can have a ministry is squeeze Moses out of his ministry. This guy is a Levite, and he is also a from the family of Kohath who had the very privileged responsibilities we saw back in chapter 3 of being able to transport the uh, furnishings that were a part of the tabernacle. So this is a guy that already has very, very significant influence and responsibility to deliver to him uh, by, by God. So he's a Levite, he's, he's all of this and, uh, and, and tremendous blessing. And you, but the interesting thing to remember, I think, on all of this is uh, every priest, Aaron and, and his descendants, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron and a Levite in order to be a priest. That's his beef. That's his beef. He's not content with being a Levite, not content with what God has called him to do. He also wants to be a priest. And so now he's going to fight against God's order and God's authority among the children of Israel. We'll see a little bit later in uh, verses 22 and also in verse 40 that Korah is really the instigator in this whole rebellion against uh, against Moses. And the application in this whole chapter 16, you look and say, well, this is kind of a dusty uh, you know, narrative from the Old Testament. It isn't because Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he speaks of Korah as an example in warning leaders in the body of Christ against rebelling against God-given authority. He said, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah is a picture of rebellion and what it does among God's people and, and where it ends. Now, a, a guy like Korah, he can't just go to Moses and say, Listen, I'll meet you at Starbucks up here by Beijing and, and uh, let's talk it over. I think I'd like some equal time with you as, as the, uh, uh, talk with Aaron about as, as high priest. Never does that. Uh, Kors are rebels and uh, they never rebel alone. Uh, they don't have that kind of, of uh, character. And, and so we're told who his co-conspirators were here in verse 1. With Dathan and Abiram, they were both brothers, the son of Eliab. And then On, who was the son of uh, Peleth. And all of them were sons of Reuben. So here these guys are all sons of Reuben, who was the firstborn of Jacob. And so Korah seems to be aiming at... Aaron's position is kind of the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. These guys, the sons of Reuben, are kind of after Moses. They want to have, they kind of look at it and say, wait a second, we're descendants of the firstborn of the patriarch Judah. We ought to be leading just as well as you, kind of politically among, among the people. And so that's kind of seems to be their beef. Well, listen, you know, four guys going up against the authority of Moses and Aaron, it's not quite enough. These kind of guys know how to really plan a rebellion. And so they, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Uh-oh. <laughs> This is big trouble. How many of you have been through a church split? Just show me a show of hands so I know what you're... Okay, you know this is trouble. The rest of you, God bless you. I hope you never see one. Not only that you would never be a part of one, but that you would never have it as a part of your Christian history. But some of us recognize this uh, very familiarly, if not in our own lives, in the lives of 
of other people. So this group of 250, now you're getting into some real numbers, even among 3 million. And it's not just their numbers, it's, it's the significance of their position. Uh, Korah knows how to pick powerful people, influential people. These are men of, uh, again, influence, authority. They are leaders not only in their tribes. They are uh, leaders also of different clans and families, prominent families within uh, the children of, of Israel. And they would have really had the trust and the respect of the people. The people would look and say, I don't know much about Korah, but the fact that, you know, so-and-so, Shlemuel over here, the head of our clan and our family, he would get involved in something unless it was legit and so it's a very powerful thing what is what is happening here and a core he never he'll never rebel alone always pulls a much larger group into his rebellion and it's amazing how many people how many leaders among God's people can get drawn into one man's bitterness and one man's selfish ambition when I run into a selfishly ambitious person in the body of Christ I run I may not turn heel and run from them in the middle of the conversation but that is a person I want to avoid at all costs it always leads to trouble it always leads to rebellion they'll never be content with their ministry they will always want someone else's ministry that they consider to be more prominent and Korah's uh, they sprout up. They sprout up sometimes where there is a lack of uh, you. If it, where there's a, a lack of authority that maybe leadership is supposed to be demonstrating in a church, and this guy will always he'll always fill a vacuum. Uh, but but sometimes he'll just come up just head to head against whoever it is that that has that uh, kind of of. Uh, 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 has the position at all and he won't mind a war I remember hearing a pastor and, and he was speaking in a leadership meeting many many years ago that I was in the middle of and, and it, just, it just exploded a life when he said it and he said it was something like this he, he said one of the biggest problems you will ever face is when you uh, have to say no to a person who is uh, desiring a position that is beyond their gifting or beyond their calling. It doesn't mean the leader is a mediator and stops people from getting to their calling, but there are times where you come to a Korah and you say to a Korah, uh, no, we don't recognize that calling upon your life or there's some other complication. When it's a Korah, you've got to fight on your hands. And it will never look like what it is. A core will never be honest about, about what it is. Selfish ambition. Ambition, the Bible teaches, is very good. Ambition for God. <laughs> Let's be mightily ambitious uh, for God. What the Bible condemns is selfish ambition. Let me read a couple of verses from the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3. Beautiful description uh, of Jesus and uh, and, and then, you know, what our lives are to be like as a result. He said, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. James chapter 3, verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And that is the fact of the matter, and Korah is a testimony to it. So they got their whole group together, and, and Moses and Aaron, they're just going on, just serving the Lord. <laughs> Just minding their own business. They've got, you know, and, and then it gets sprung on them. This whole group, verse 3, gathered against Moses and Aaron. So we've got kind of a conflict coming up. This situation, they're coming to him, them and confronting them. Very, very dangerous uh, situation that you, you have here. Now remember, it's not just Moses and Aaron here. It's Moses and Aaron obeying God, and God has eternal purposes attached to these people. 
And so this rebellion is going to, has the potential to really do damage to God's purpose for God's people at this time, with Jewish people, in order to bring the Messiah into the world and, and to bring uh, the, New, the Old Testament scriptures uh, into the world. So this is a very, very well-planned uh, rebellion. This is about as bad as a church split gets. It would be like a church like this, where there would be me and one of the associate pastors on one side, and then on the other side would be all of the rest of the pastoral staff, all of the staff, all of the elders, all of the deacons, all of the board of deacons, and then most of the congregation. Humanly speaking, uh, Moses and Aaron have no chance of surviving this very, very crafty, well-planned rebellion against, uh, against their authority. Only God can protect them from the sophistication uh, of this attack. Now, thankfully, God is, is able to do that kind of thing. Notice their accusations that they bring against them. They said, you take too much upon yourselves. Uh, as if they had taken it upon themselves. What they didn't know was Moses was trying to quit uh, by, uh, each month, uh, with some regularity anyway. So he was trying to get out of this job and this calling. So, but they, they didn't know any of this. You take too much on yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them, we're all equal, and, and the Lord is among them. And then why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The problem is, they didn't. God had exalted them. Now Korah's making, and these people are making, the same mistake that Aaron and Miriam made. And that is they're confusing equality in the eyes of God with authority. God loves us all equally. God values us all equally. He sees each one of our ministries as equally important. But he does choose to give more authority to some people. And, and that's just the way that it is, not only in the Old Testament, but also uh, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, it says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Let me read you another passage just to say this has New Testament application. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. So they're, they're coming and they're, they have trouble with the fact that Moses and Aaron have been called to a position with a little more authority than they, than they have. And, uh, and they're saying that they have done this with their own selfish ambition. But the fact of the matter is God has put them uh, in that position. So what they want is authority. They want the same authority that they have. So when Moses and heard it, Moses heard it. His instant physical response was he fell on his face. <laughs> in other words, he, he's, each time Moses and Aaron fall on their face, they're, they're saying a couple of things. Number one, they're saying, we, Lord, we are not about all these other people. So we're on our face. They're standing up. There's two different groups here. It looks like you're going to have to uh, take out your belt and, and give them a whooping. And, uh, and so, and he knew, oh man, God is going to have to jump in and take care of this. Again, they've gotten blindsided with this. They didn't have kind of an inkling that this is happening and they put their team together who supports them and all this stuff. They just realized, wow, this is so dangerous and we know God has called us and God's going to have to defend, uh, defend that calling. And then it, it, what he did verbally is he spoke to Korah and all of his company saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show. You think we're doing all this and not us doing The Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will cause Him to come near to Him. That one whom He chooses, 
uh, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, you and uh, Korah and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. And then he turns the accusation back on them. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Now, why would Moses say, take a censer, put incense on it, and tomorrow morning we'll do that, you do that, we'll all come out in the middle here, and God can choose. Because to burn incense in a censer was a priestly duty. That was reserved for the priests. It was not for the Levites, and it was not for the Kohathites. So what Moses is basically saying is, you want to be a priest? There might be a little more involved to being a priest than you realize. But if you want to be a priest, go ahead and take the instruments, bring it out, and we'll see who God chooses uh, as it relates to all of this. So he leaves, I mean, he leaves his defense completely and very, very wisely uh, to uh, the Lord. And so here we go. We'll leave it with the Lord. He can show what it is that he wants to do. And then Moses said personally to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. He said, Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? You Levites, it's not like you don't have a ministry. What are you doing? You've got a great ministry. You've got a chance to go down in history as a great people, is what he's kind of saying. And to bring you near to himself, I mean, you have an ability to get closer to God and your service to him than almost three million people of God's people. It's not like you don't lack uh, privilege to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them. And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you. Are you uh, and are you seeking the priesthood also I mean you're fighting against God look what he's given you the one thing you don't have is the priesthood and now you want to take that by by a, a strong arm selfish ambition rebellion and therefore you and all of your company are gathered together against the Lord you got to give him credit for this and 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 I think it really you look at the number of people that have come up against uh, Moses, and this upsets Moses. There's a big crowd of people, very, very prominent people that have risen against him, and he stands up because he knows God has called him. He knows privately things that they can't even, can't even know that God has put him through, and so he just stands up and, and boldly confronts them with the fact, you are not fighting against me, you are fighting against God in, in all of this. And what is Aaron that you complain against uh, him? And so he, he can, uh, confronts them and rebukes them for this attack against his uh, authority. So again, this great warning that Moses gives them against selfish ambition and bitter envy and, and, and the like. And Moses then sent to Dathan and Abiram. Uh, apparently they hadn't come out with a larger group, the sons of Eliab. Or maybe there was some space of time after this confrontation. And so he said, Moses called them to come. He wanted to meet with them. And they said, we will not come up. I mean, just incredible pride and disrespect for his authority. I mean, all that Moses had been through to stay faithful to. Moses had prayed twice already or they would have all been wiped out. See, I, let me, I'll tell you something. No matter, I'm not talking about myself. I'm just saying, in terms of people that are making a difference for the Lord, every one of them pays a private price to do that. To keep their heads screwed on straight and to keep them humble. There's a lot that goes on there that people don't see and don't understand. God knows how to, to do that. And they don't know ha half the story here and just the disrespect that's shown toward him. Then they accuse him. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? That's how they describe Egypt. <laughs> you took us out of the land of milk and honey, Egypt, and to kill us here in the wilderness. Why are they in the wilderness? Their own sin. Their own sin. It had nothing to do with Moses. Moses was ready to go go in, but they're going to accuse him and to kill us in this wilderness that you should keep and that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Here you are, you're abusing your power 
and uh, these kinds of things. And so you talk about revisionist history. They think Egypt is the land flowing with milk and honey. They think they're in the wilderness because of some failure on Moses' part. Why are they in the wilderness? Their own rebellion and disobedience. But what's the easiest solution? Change the coach. Change the coach every time. Change the leader. This thing is not going the way that we, that, that we want. And so it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the, the Christian that won't walk by faith, won't obey the word of God. They end up in the wilderness and, and their life ends up amounting to nothing. And then they want to blame somebody else, some leader uh, for that. And that's the kind of, of people that they are. We will, will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry. Now remember, Moses was, uh, by the description of God in the Scriptures, uh, the meekest man in the whole world at this time. It takes a lot to upset him. These guys have done it. He's very angry. And he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. In other words, tomorrow when they bring that censer and that incense, don't respect it. Don't encourage these people at all. Do not respect their offering. I haven't taken one donkey from them. They accuse me of acting like a prince. I have, I have never used my position to take one donkey from them. And a donkey was the least of all of the livestock. Moses had not used his authority to enrich himself in any way or to lord it uh, over them. And nor have I hurt a single one of them. And Moses then said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company uh, be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer, put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So the next day, every man took his censer. They couldn't wait. wonder if they got any sleep that night. Hope they got some good sleep that night, because today's going to be a really rough day for everyone but Moses and Aaron. So they took their censer, they put fire in it, they laid incense on it, they stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. So here's the big showdown. God is going to choose between Moses and Aaron and all of these other people. And Korah gathered all the congregations. I mean, you're talking about his poison uh, influencing not only this group of leaders, but thousands and thousands of, of people among uh, the children of Israel, the congregation uh, of, of Israel. And he gathered uh, all of the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. God shows up. God is the deciding factor in all of this. One plus God is a majority. Two plus God is a majority. No one plus God is a majority. So here he comes, and now whose side is he going to land on here? And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Uh-oh. He completely ignores Korah, the brothers, <laughs> and the 250. I'll tell you, if I'm standing there, I'm getting a little antsy. Because that's the only one God's going to talk to in this whole thing. In other words, these are my guys that I talk to, not you guys. So it's got kind of a, a bad beginning for them. And then, as if it couldn't get worse, he, his instruction to them is, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Now, if I'm holding one of those sensors, I'm looking for a place to ditch it. Here, would you hold this for a minute? <laughs> Clear on out of here. You know? So, man, I'd start sweating right at, at that moment. So the Lord gives him that instruction. In other words, I'm going to come in and I'm just going to wipe them out and I want you to just get kind of some distance here uh, between uh, you and them in order that you don't get caught uh, in, in the middle uh, of all of this. And so uh, then uh, Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces again and they say, Oh, Lord, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all of the congregation? Look at the heart of Moses and Aaron here. Some of us might be tempted to say, all right, flail away. Let her rip. We'll see what's left after this. This is like the third time on this deal. 
So, but he comes in, and it is, it, I think it's the heart of a seasoned leader in the work of the Lord. And he just looks and he says, man, I know how this goes. I know how just one guy can mislead God's people in this kind of way. And he knows that that's what's happened. So he asks God, differentiate between Korah here and the people. They just unknowingly got sucked into something that they don't know the facts about. And it's a beautiful picture of a real, I think, again, a seasoned leader in in the work uh, of the Lord. And so the Lord, here's his response to Moses' prayer. He said, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, uh, Dathan, and Abiram. Get away from, from there where they uh, live. And now remember these guys, because of, uh, uh, at least with Korah, his position would have been close to the tabernacle. And then Moses uh, rose, went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Get apart from them. Don't take a single rock. And so they got away from around the tents of uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out, stood at the door of their tents with their children and their sons, uh, uh, with their wives, their sons, and their little children. So now they're standing all alone. And this is, how, this is what they should have done at the beginning. They should have done their rebellion all alone without sucking everybody else into the thing. And so he's got them all alone. He says, all right, now let's, now let's choose here. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that I have authority from God, for I have not done any of them of my own will. If these men before you die naturally like all men, they die at a hundred years old in their sleep, okay, or they're visited by the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. They die a natural death. But if the Lord does some kind of a new thing, and the earth opens up its mouth, and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you'll understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Wow. Okay. Now you gotta, you're going to stand you know, with, with that. And it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split open under them, the earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with their households, and all the men with Korah, with all their goods, and so they went down with them, went down alive into the pit, the earth closed up over them, and they perished from among the assembly. That's clear as a bell. That's just clear, clear as a bell. And one of the reasons that Moses said, you know, he gives him God an extraordinary way for God to choose in, in this way is that nobody could uh, look at it as a coincidence. If Moses had said, uh, listen, if these guys are called by God and it begins to sprinkle a little bit, you know, then people say, well, you know, the, what are the odds of sprinkling? But it's a pretty unprecedented event here. So it made it very, very clear to the people that had been drawn into this thing that God had chosen to give authority to Moses and Aaron. The other thing that it does, and God's usually doing several things all at the same time, is it removed a very bad and dangerous influence from among God's people. And so he just swallowed the whole thing up and, uh, and the whole thing uh, disappeared and he just kind of uh, judged it in that way and knocked out uh, several things at the same time. Now, it is fascinating as, as we look at uh, you know, this swallowing up of this kind of insurrection uh, and, and all removing their influence. Um, it, sometimes people can look at that and say, well, uh, why the children and why the, f- the family members? It would, it would appear that they were very much in line uh, with, uh, with the leaders of their family in this. And one of the reasons that we can kind of ascertain that, they're, they're very engaged in, in the rebellion against, uh, against this authority, is that Korah appears to have been swallowed up in this judgment, but his descendants lived. There was no judgment against uh, the the uh, the descendants of uh, of Korah, and uh, because when you go into the the book of Psalms, for example, 
And it's a beautiful picture of, of the Lord's grace. The descendants of Korah continue to live. They continue. In other words, he was kind of doing a one-man show. He couldn't pull his particular uh, family uh, into it. And when you go into the, the book of Psalms, Psalm 42, Psalm uh, 84, some of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible are written by the descendants of Korah. So he apparently did not have their support, and God was very... Uh, restrained and very accurate in his judgment related to these families. To give you an idea of the beauty uh, of, of the descendants of Korah and, and the psalm, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, many of you will recognize it, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, verse 10 also written by a descendant of Korah, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So by this time they've learned the lesson of their kind of patriarch and they are very, very content with their area of service. They've rejected the example of, of this selfish ambition of Korah. All of it gets swallowed up. Now the interesting thing about this kind of a rebellion, even today, is it does end up getting swallowed up, uh, like in a church split or something, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer. I have never ever known this kind of a rebellion against authority to incur in a church that tears it right down the middle, where the people that are motivated by selfish ambition, bitter envy, these things that the Bible says do not descend from above, that they come uh, from beneath and come from the world. That group of people, if they're able to tear a church in two or they're able to take over a church, all you have to do is just set your watch, hit the timer, and just wait for that thing to disintegrate. They will cannibalize one another. They will swallow themselves up. And usually it takes about one or two years and the thing disappears off the, off the face of the spiritual uh, planet. And so God is sometimes a little more patient to let it work out uh, even today. And, and so this is the, the great judgment that occurs here. And then that you have the reaction of the people, verse 34. Then all Israel who were around them fled, very good idea, fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth uh, swallow us up also. And so they, they left a little bit differently than, than they had come, which is a good thing. And then a fire came out from the Lord, consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So they're still holding their little incense pot, and the fire comes out, and boom, they're gone, uh, just like, uh, like that. Well, I wanted God to choose, and so uh, God, God chose and made it uh, very, very uh, clear. So uh, then in verse 36, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up all these censers that they had dropped down as they'd been killed out of the blaze, for these things are holy now. God, even in his judgment, had made these these censors, these examples of their rebellion, had made them holy. God works all things together for good, the Bible says, doesn't he? Uh, for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. And, and so uh, take them, they're holy, scatter the fire some distance away. And the censors of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates. They were to hammer them out till they were kind of flat metal as a covering for the altar, the brazen altar where they offer the sacrifices. Because they presented them before the Lord, therefore they are holy and they shall be a sign to the children of Israel. So Eliezer, the priest, took the bronze censers which those who uh, were burned up had presented and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar. And here's the purpose, to be a memorial. What is a memorial? It's a reminder to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider, not Korah, not anyone else, who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord and he might, that he might 
not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. So every time they came to the tabernacle, they would see this bronze kind of covering added to uh, the altar, and it would be a reminder, God has chosen Aaron and his sons uniquely uh, to be the priests among God's people. And on the next day, all of the congregation uh, of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Oy vey, as they say. (laughs) What are you going to do with people like this? I mean, so they think Moses has done it, like Moses has the power to open up the earth and close it back up again. That's the whole reason that Moses asked for something extraordinary to happen so they wouldn't ascribe it to him or think it was a coincidence, but they would recognize God has spoken definitively in this situation. When Jeremiah says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, here is an example of that. I mean, imagine... Waking up the next day and then accusing him that you, accuse him of murder, and then saying, these guys that you killed, these are the real people of the Lord. Now it happened, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, this is, they are in danger of their lives here, folks. This is, this is serious. That they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly a cloud appeared, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Time for God to come in and and uh, uh, and protect Moses and Aaron once again. And then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment." And they fell on their faces. They know this is going to be trouble again. And so Moses said to Aaron, as as God launches then a judgment against the children of Israel, and and as it's kind of making its way, a pestilence of some kind, judgment making its way through the congregation, invisible in some way, Moses sees what God has done. He tells Aaron, take a censer, you know, you're the high priest now, step up into your duties here, put fire on it from the altar, this represents prayer, the incense upon it, take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. And then Aaron took it as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people, and so he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living as a high priest and so the plague was stopped now Moses I mean Aaron remember he is a type or a picture of Jesus as our high priest he dealt with the types and the shadows in dealing with the tabernacle and then later his descendants with the temple itself. Jesus is the high priest that not only uh, gives us access into the tabernacle, which is a symbol of, of God's presence. Jesus is a high priest that gives us access into heaven itself. And uh, so here he is, he stands between the living and the dead, just as Jesus today as the high priest stands between the living and the dead, between man and this enemy called uh, death, and uh, has provided us with a victory over death, even as we have uh, sung this evening. And, and so here is, uh, uh, and God honors what Aaron does here, and it's another way of of. Uh, God speaking to the children of Israel saying, you reject Aaron as the high priest. And yet it is only because Aaron operates as a high priest in this situation that I honor what he's done and I stop the plague. It was one more confirmation of his calling upon uh, Aaron. Now those who died in the plague were 14 1,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. And so, uh, he again, he re- keeps removing this influence. He's not going to put up with this influence and, and rebellion against his God-given authority among his people. And so he removes their influence. And so Aaron returned to Moses. They're united together once again at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. <sighs> What a two days those guys have had. (laughs) Busy. Now we're heading to chapter 17 because it ties to this. And uh, we won't be long in it. So here is this 
uh, following this rebellion, God is going to drive home again this this lesson in case anybody didn't get it, and, and that is that Aaron and his descendants were his choice for high priest and also for the priests. And if you have a beef with that, God is basically saying, you don't have a beef with Aaron or his descendants, you have a beef with me. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. Now a rod is a stick. It's like a staff, but a smaller, it's a stick. And what is a a stick is, is a dead thing. It's just a dead stick. It's been cut off from life. So it's this dead thing. So get a rod from each of the father's, uh, ha- father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, 12 rods, one for each of the 12 tribes. Write each man's name on his rod. So each one of the rods represented one of the 12 tribes, just so you wouldn't get it mixed up. So you'd put them all in kind of a a pile in front of uh, the uh, holy of, in the holy of holies, as we're going to see in a moment, and then God does something supernatural with one. Then somebody says, "No, that's mine. No, that's mine. I, I re- really remember that not being a part of my." So He has them write up their name on them, so there can't be any any mistake in, in any of this. And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod for Levi, the tribe of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. And then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony. So in the Holy of Holies, right before the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony refers to the Ten Commandments that were inside of it, where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose, that rod, that dead rod, is going to blossom. And thus, with this blossoming of that rod, I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. I'm just going to give them one more evidence that I've called you this and to put a complete end now to their rebellion and complaining. And so Moses, he spoke to the children of Israel and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's houses, 12 rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And so Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness, beautiful obedience. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted You farmers, you're going to like this. It had sprouted. Not only had it sprouted, but it had had put forth buds. Not only had it put forth buds, but it had also done the next thing. It had produced blossoms, but it didn't stop with blossoms. It did what blossoms are all about. It yielded ripe almonds. And then Aaron brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. And they looked, and each man uh, took his uh, rod. And so the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. And thus did Moses just as the Lord had commanded him. So he did. And so uh, the, as the rod of Aaron Uh, comes forth with life, it comes forth with buds, it comes forth with flowers, it comes forth uh, with with, uh, fruit. God confirmed his choice of Aaron as high priest in two ways. Number one, through resurrection. The life coming out of the dead wood. And number two, he confirmed his choosing of, of Aaron as high priest through supernatural fruit. Again, Aaron is a picture He's a, a type or a shadow of Jesus as, as the great high priest, the greater high, high priest. Jesus is better as a high priest, the book of Hebrews uh, teaches. And God has testified, the Father has testified to Jesus as the high priest uh, according to the order of Melchizedek in the very same way through an even greater demonstration of resurrection than bringing life to a stick by raising Jesus himself from the dead and through an even greater fruitfulness by making, as, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, making Jesus the first fruits of those who have died and now uh, are risen from the dead, his victory uh, over death. And so the same way that he confirmed the calling of, of Aaron, the Old Testament, he used the same uh, symbolism to confirm his call uh, and, and 
uh, and uh, testified to the veracity or the truthfulness of Jesus and his ministry and his calling through his resurrection. And that was God's stamp of approval upon Jesus' ministry and upon uh, his, his teaching. And so Moses takes and he delivers this irrefutable evidence to them. And, and so the children of Israel, verse 12, they spoke to Moses saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish, a fairly emotional group. And uh, whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. And so they recognize their guilt in rebelling against uh, Aaron and their continual guilt in this. And they figure they're going to get, uh, you know, judged by God uh, once again. But the, uh, and God wasn't going to judge them. But it does seem at this point that God's lesson, this lesson concerning his authority and his freedom to choose who he wants to put in these positions of authority, that that was to be respected by them. That lesson seems to have gotten through to them. So we see this beautiful picture. Praise the Lord tonight, I think, as I think about Aaron, especially in this chapter 17. I love to think about Jesus as my high priest and as our high priest. And just to think about the fact that what it is that he's done that allows us Access not into a tabernacle or a type or a form or you know some symbol or shadow, but he has given us access to heaven. Now, when you have a, when you're a person like me, you need access to heaven all the time. You need to when you wake up in the middle of the night, and when you get older, you wake up in the middle of the night, and and uh, you wake up in the middle of the night, and it's so wonderful to immediately begin to pray. I don't want you to think I'm hyper-spiritual or anything like that, but, I mean, the thoughts go to the things of the Lord. He has given us anywhere, anytime access to the throne of God. I mean, how rich we are. I think it's important for us as we sit here tonight and uh, the guys are going to come up and lead us in a little bit of a meditative set to let all, help us to digest all of this a little bit this evening. But I think if you sit here tonight and you've never made Jesus your Savior and your Lord, don't rebel against that high priest. You look at this and you say, man, these people just got hammered because they would not accept Moses as high priest. Doesn't even compare to the consequences of failing to recognize Jesus as our Savior and as our High Priest. Because in that decision, eternity is at stake and eternal judgment is at stake. Make Him your Savior tonight. Make Him your Lord tonight. Make Him your High Priest uh, tonight. And then move from death and move from judgment into life and into everlasting life. It's there too. God has it for us and desires to give it to us th this evening. So, if the men will come forward and...